What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And we're doing this episode uh, actually at the request of some friends of ours at yeah. the Medical University of South Carolina, where Cole and I both graduated for uh, alumni weekday something. Yeah. I think it's part of. Uh, I don't know if um, we get a whole week. Do we? I think I think we get a whole month. Pharmacist month, and yeah. then and then alumni week. Yeah, a whole month. That's that's cocky, but. Um, so we're actually joined today um, by another alumni, um, and his uh, name is Dr. Andrew Fierlo, and he is co- calling us from all the way from Pennsylvania, so we're happy to have him here. He doesn't unfortunately live in uh, Charleston anymore, so, um, but he's calling in and um, going to kind of support us through alumni week. week. We probably should have checked that before. Tonight is, al- is Core Consult <laughs> Alumni Night, that's what we'll call it. But, uh, but, but Dr. Fiorello is, um, is the VP of Global Medical Affairs and AstraZeneca's Oncology uh, Department. So, um, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. So, you graduated from MUSC in 1995, correct? So, how... Give us a little bit of background, because I know one of the things that we wanted to talk about was kind of, you know, the path of how you went from pharmacy school to where you are now, because I think one of the things that we always get caught up in is, especially in the pharmacy world, is you can either do like community side or you're going to do clinical side. And sometimes we forget about some of the other job opportunities in like industry and things like that that are out there. And we hear the word industry, but at least for me, it was just this nebulous term that <laughs> referred to to drug companies, but I truly had no idea what the pharmacists do. So can you kind of yeah. like walk us through like from, you know, your early days in undergrad and all that and, you know, kind of what led you into pharmacy and then give us some background on your career path? Absolutely. My pleasure. And, and don't, don't feel, um, you know, that, that there's any issue there. I, I did not know a thing about industry either. And, and, and my goal was down the clinical path as well. I, I started out uh, doing a BS uh, pharmacy program uh, at St. John's University in New York way back in the day. And as I, I went through that, I, I kind of gravitated towards hospital pharmacy and, and enjoyed the work a lot. Uh, and I got opportunities to work in, uh, in the hemonc side of the really enjoyed working with the patients and, and helping them. And, and it was that piece of getting to work that I realized then that I knew, I knew I wanted to go back and get my PharmD and really pursue the clinical side of pharmacy as much as I could. So after a few years of work in hospital, that's when I went back to, Saint, uh, to MUSC uh, full-time for the uh, post-bac PharmD program at the time. And it was an awesome experience, right? I mean, as, as, as folks know that MUSC is just a stellar program and I got uh, so much out of it and so much excitement, knew I wanted to pursue clinical pharmacy further. And I really gravitated even more towards the pediatric side of things. So after I was finishing up, I went through the residency search process and, and ended up uh, landing a pediatric specialty residency down at uh, All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida with a plan to go for a year and do my residency and then, you know, hopefully become a pediatric clinical pharmacist somewhere. It turns out that we 
really loved the area in St. Pete, and I got the opportunity to stay on as a clinical pharmacist there at All Children's. And it was a great experience that I did for another five or so years um, and worked in pediatric ICU. I got to do a lot of education and teaching with pharmacy students that we had on rotation and got to lead the residency program. So the educational aspect was awesome. Um, patient care was great. And I got to do clinical research. We had a fairly large clinical research uh, area where we got to do studies in cystic fibrosis and seizures and HIV and a whole host of things. So all that was great. And I think I would still be doing it today. I mean, there was nothing about it I didn't love. I loved the patient care aspect and loved the things we could do. Um, and, and like I said, I knew nothing about industry at that time. And what was happening back in the mid 90s or, or around 2000 was a lot of pharmaceutical companies were expanding their teams of medical science liaisons, which are um, a group of typically field-based scientists, mostly PharmDs, PhDs, a few MDs, maybe a couple of nurse practitioners, but usually doctorate level scientific background degrees uh, for people to help um, come into the company and, and engage with practitioners and researchers externally around the medicines and the science. And it's only because I went on an interview for one and, and, and it was in an area of respiratory uh, which very much was in the wheelhouse of what I was doing in pediatrics. I mean, so much of, of pediatrics was respiratory illnesses and diseases um, that that I decided to take a chance and, and, and make the leap. And that was AstraZeneca. And so I'm 20 years in two weeks at, wow. at, at AZ, which is really unusual in industry, right, for people to stay in one company for that long. But it's been a great company for me, lots of opportunities to continue to grow and stay challenged and work with great people, but more importantly, work with medicines that I think have a really important, you know, um, opportunity to help patients. And that's really what, what's, what's kept me there. And when I came in, I knew nothing. I didn't even know what the MSL role really was, other than I knew as I was going to work at home, which was a really weird transition from working in a hospital <laughs> setting my career. Um, and I would go out and, and talk to practitioners and healthcare practitioners and the like um, about our medicines. And, and once I got into it, uh, and got to do it for a while and really see how, I mean, the thing I loved about clinical pharmacy was you can impact patients. I can impact a patient every single day on rounds, on caring for them, on looking at their medications, on counseling, you name it, right? On, on our formulary decisions. Moving to industry was a bit of a hesitancy because all right, I'm not going to be directly impacting and helping patients anymore. But the piece that I realized was I may not be able to directly help individual patients who are coming into my hospital. But if I can help investigators, if I can help physicians, if I can help pharmacists and other practitioners understand how best to use our medicines, in which patients they should get and which ones shouldn't, and there's the potential to impact and help whole populations of patients. And that was the part to me that was exciting about it and why I've stayed on, on this side of, of industry. Yeah, that's compelling. Talk a little bit about... Um you you mentioned it casually, which I think is funny. You finished your BS in pharmacy, and then you're like, oh, and then I decided to go back and get my PharmD. I can only imagine that was a big decision being, you know, post-grad and imagining going back to school would definitely be quite an endeavor. And that was, I suppose, in the early um, stages of the PharmD program. All that me and Mike know is the PharmD program. Um, so why did you decide to do that? Was it brand new and you had to come down, you know, were there a limited amount of institutions that offered it at that time? You know, is that why you ended up in Charleston? 
Um, I think from when I was getting towards the end of the BS program and getting ready to graduate and studying for the boards and all that work, first of all, I was I was ready to be done because, as you know, it's an intensive program. But I also saw that the the potential positions I really wanted as a clinical pharmacist were going to require the PharmD. I mean, it was established enough at that time that I knew with an RPH alone, I could be a staff pharmacist in a hospital or potential go administration route, but but the PharmD was going to be required. Now, a lot of times back in the day, you were lucky if you were the PharmD at a hospital, right? Many places had one and they were the clinical, did everything. Obviously, the, the profession has advanced so much you know, since then. So actually, I even did one step more. I knew I didn't want to go back right away and just do another two years. So I actually started working and I went back at night part-time to do what St. John's had was like a master's degree just so I could stay fresh. Um, I don't, wouldn't say the master's truly helped me career-wise, but it kept me up on, on the education and the science and that piece so I didn't get rusty. And then I kind of knew then it was just a matter of time. When was I going to go back? When would I save enough money to go back? Right. And, and, and then which would be the right, right program to go to? So I did my kind of research to try to figure out what was going to be the best program. And that's when I landed on MUSC. Great. So you mentioned uh, when you started with AstraZeneca, um, you were a medical science liaison. Now, there's a difference between a drug rep that a lot of times we genuinely generally see kind of in the clinics and whatnot, and then a medical science liaison. I know um, there was a case where I, I I forget which vaccine it was at this time. It was like a couple of years ago now, but the drug rep had originally come in was talking to us about it, and I had asked a few questions that he said he wasn't allowed to answer and things like that. So then, he, like a week later, he brought his medical science liaison with him. And then he like he, he we went into a like conference room and then the drug rep said I can't be in here to hear like and he stepped out I literally thought they were gonna like Men in Black um, like wipe my memory afterwards I was like what is happening <laughs> so but it, like so there is a huge distinction can you kind of walk us through that a little bit because I I don't think everyone's aware that there is a distinction there yeah I mean I think there's a distinction. I think there's two ways of looking at it. One is what does the regulations and like the FDA and, 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 and they say about what can be done and then how does a company apply those rules? And the main thing is from an FDA standpoint, a company, no matter who you are, you're only allowed to promote on information that's, that's consistent with your product label, right? And things that you're approved to have, the, the science that's in the label. And that's, and so the way the company, but you're allowed to answer questions for the purpose of providing truthful and not misleading information to healthcare practitioners across the board that need and have questions, need information about your medicines, right? So those are the things that are allowed to be done. What most companies will do, they'll say, okay, commercial teams, sales teams, we will have them do promotion. And that's what they will stick with. And the cleanest thing for them to do is only stick with conversations and activities that are consistent with labeling and, and, and on label and, and have those activities. And then they may get questions because who knows what will come up and they just need a mechanism where they can triage them to someone else who's, who's trained to answer them. And if you think about, I mean, you think about knowing a medicine, it's one thing to know what's in the label to know all the other science that's out there, preclinical, clinical trials, how it compares to other things. Like a lot of that's not in the label and there's no, practical way most companies are going to train all their sales teams to keep up on all of that. So that's when they typically bring in the medical science liaisons where we can answer those questions 
either directly through our conversation or we have the resources. That's part of the L part of the word the liaison is to link back in with other departments because those questions might be around, it may be a drug info question or it might be a safety issue where you need to get other experts or there might be a desire to do research and you want to connect them with certain research teams. And so there's a there's a there's an education response component to the role, but there's also the piece of being able to connect um, those people with many of the other um, groups within the company that can can address their needs. So how do they kind of, what's the expectations on you as far as keeping up with like the research that's currently underway and things that are in the pipeline? Are you expected to be like deep in, you know, the research as well so that you can answer those questions? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things uh, that we do and, and one of my one of the teams that, that I lead is our is our medical training team, and that's their whole purpose is to build out the training program so that the MSLs across the globe or even the, all the other medical roles are up to date on all the latest science. Um, so the text behind trial, the populations that could potentially use in the designs, the results, um, and they can talk to those um, in an informed and accurate way, and that's the main thing, right? That, that they're accurate. So I think one of the one of the learnings for me going from clinical pharmacy in a hospital into industry it was in clinical pharmacy. I knew I knew something about a lot of different diseases and a lot of different drugs. When I came into industry, I had to know a whole lot about one or two um, diseases and drugs, and and the amount of depth and context I had. I didn't appreciate how much there was to know about a medicine and its clinical trial program right. and, and everything else. And, and so it's that, it's that breadth and depth that's, that's really the difference. So, so it's almost, I guess nowadays, like in the clinical role, it would be like the equivalent of having like a clinical pharmacy specialist that is only working in oncology or only working, you know, in uh, transplant or something like that. Um, I, you and yeah. I have talked off air about, uh, one of the things we liked about pharmacy was the ability to kind of jump into different roles and it's not, you know, if, if you're a physician and you do a residency to be a pulmonologist, you can't wake up one day and go, you know what, I'm more of a cardiology kind of guy. And then just start, <laughs> it's going to take a long time to get retrained and do all that. So, you know, one of the things I, I know, I was very like much drawn to pharmacy because of the ability to kind of change and jump into things. Um, do you agree with that? Is that something that you've liked? And is, is the role that you're in now, do you feel, do you still feel like you can kind of um, move around like in the company internally and like still kind of scratch those itches when you get them to try something new? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, however, I would absolutely be dangerous if I went back into a hospital right now. <laughs> so I know I'm, I'm too far removed from that um, to be, to be, to be any good, but I think the, the, the background of pharmacists, I think really lends well to these career paths for just the reasons you mentioned. There's a, broad base of training that can move in different areas and you'll find people like myself like I, I mentioned I came in in respiratory I had to make a decision at one point if I wanted to move up as a leader and start to lead teams was to move over to the cardiovascular therapeutic area and I was like I haven't done cardiovascular since PharmD school um, but it actually when I did it I realized it came back pretty quickly. Um, and, and it made me realize that the training that I had and that breadth in being a pharmacist was quite good. And since then, I've moved on. I've done neurology teams. I've had pain management. And now I've moved back to the oncology space, which has only been the past few years. And obviously, oncology has changed so much in, in, over the past you know decade or two that that's been a tremendous learning. And I think a lot of people will, will 
uh, with pharmacist backgrounds have the opportunity to do that. You will though find others who, who their strength is their depth in their therapeutic area. And they, and oncology as an example of the area I'm in, you'll find a lot of people who they'll spend their entire career in that space because you can, and because there's so much science in advancing and companies may evolve over time as to how many products they have and how rich their pipeline is and the like. And you'll see people will move from a company to company, but stay in the oncology space because that's their expertise. And I think it's just a choice as to which way you want to go. For me and the career options and the, the breadth I wanted to move into other parts and learn other parts of industry and how drug you know development and everything worked, it, I, I kind of went the route of, be, of becoming more of a generalist by changing those therapeutic areas. And now I'm you know, over a broad amount where my depth is actually not as strong as it used to be, but I, it, my the areas I focus on are, are really the the breadth across. Yeah. So what about your day to day? Because not only did I have no idea what an industry pharmacist does, but I've heard the term medical science liaison, and and like Mike said, kind of equated him to um, a similar situation to drug reps because that's what we see, but we know there's a distinction. So you mentioned you know being at home frequently. So pre COVID. Um, was yeah. most of your time spent uh, internally teaching and interacting, or were you mostly going to uh, clinics, hospitals, doctors' offices, uh, teaching and talking to them? Yeah, it's mostly external, um, and and most companies, you know, depends on the size of the company and and sizes how many medical science liaisons you'll have. Right? You can have some companies that has a team of four people covering the United States, so those people are on an airplane a lot. And they're really only going to the major centers, right? Major health centers in for those diseases and, and, and talking to the, the very top, you know, um, practices and, and departments and the like in those areas. Other, other, you know, bigger companies and bigger therapeutic areas, you know, they have, you know, broad patient, you know, um, new teams of 30, 40, 50 or so. And so territories are different sizes and the work is a little bit different. So basically people will have a territory and you're still spending most of your time at different hospitals and institutions, talking to the physicians, the, the clinical pharmacists, the investigators, researchers in those areas. And it could be sharing new information, answering questions that come up. It could be following up on research ideas, um, helping flesh out, you know, opportunities for participating in different trials, um, could be a whole host of activities, but, and, and there is some connecting with the salespeople in your region to understand what are the questions they're hearing? What are the issues? Are there people out there who have questions that maybe I might need to go in and see and, and answer? So there's, there's an aspect of that as well. And there's obviously a lot fewer of the MSLs than you would a sales force. And so that's why you don't see as many of them um, because they're, they're typically just going to, to the biggest centers because they're, you know, they, they have to focus in, in those areas. So now it's all virtual. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, so for me, the thought of being anything similar to a salesman, I would just be absolutely terrible at. Like if they, if they pushed me on one of my drugs and was like, wait, but this happened, you know, increased risk of this, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. The drug stinks. You know, like I, I couldn't. So do you feel like for, with you, is it mostly is, I'm just, I'm just totally, totally felt like paper just crumble. Um, do you feel like for you, you can just lay out information, black and white. Here's the science. Here's the data. You're not really pushing anything necessarily. It's the, it's the drug reps jobs to be the salesman. Well, it is certainly the drug reps job to be the salesman. I think the way I, 
the way I've looked at this job and the way I've always found it interesting is, you know, when I when I've done my research and I understand my medicine and where we think it fits and, and which patients we think it can help, then we're going out and we're having conversations and we're checking. To, do do you all agree with that? Like you might see it differently. You're dealing with different challenges. You're dealing with the patients themselves and the and the payers and the challenges of care and complexities and everything that we don't see. So sometimes it's a dialogue. Like this is what I think. This is what this is what we think our data are showing, and this is how we think it could be used. What are you seeing? Where do you think you might use it in your pay? And that insight from that conversation is very valuable for us back to a company to pressure test. Are we even? Uh, you know, are we working in reality or does the, or does the healthcare community think differently about sure. it? And that's, that's mostly the dialogue that's happening. And sometimes it may be, okay, come and give us a presentation about this medicine. But oftentimes it's a conversation to understand where are you seeing it? What, 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 what are you doing in this population? Are you doing this treatment? Are you not? Are you doing surgery first? Are you doing radiation? Are you doing chemo? Are you doing, you know, immunotherapies? And understanding then, okay, if our study, which you know, is in this area and reads out this way and is positive, what might you think you might do? Or, you know, and so it's a dialogue like that. Right. More so than, let me tell you why our drug's the best. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That's, and I've, like I said, at this point, I've talked to several, you know, medical science liaisons, and I always have so much more of an enjoyable conversation <laughs> with them because like you said, it's more of a conversation about the research um, and you can go in depth with it. You know, and, I, and don't get me wrong. I love a lot of the drug reps that I that mm -hmm. I get to visit with. They're awesome. But there, I you do especially if it's a drug that I don't like because of the research that's out there. That's competitors are just better. I hate when there's the selling part of it, and I'm sitting there like I read the literature. I'm not stupid. Like I know what that, and and I like that you like that it's more of a conversation like that because, yeah, I think it it takes away that feeling of like okay, are you just trying to pull a fast one on me or are we really trying to do science here? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think the thing about the sales reps and the, and the materials and, and, and the things they're bringing out, right? So they're not going to come out and talk about anything that hasn't been well vetted in a company as being approved on label and supported by the science, right? So they're not going to, they shouldn't be, never really should be talking about anything that's wrong if, they, if, they're, if, they're, if they're good at their job, right? Yeah. Um, it may not be what you need. And, and, and I think oftentimes when we, when we talk to other pharmacists, you're right, you've read the, the, the data, right? But a lot of the other practitioners that they're engaging do not keep up on the data or they, you know, they may do great at patient care, but they're not keeping up on reading and scrutinizing medical literature. So the information they bring to other practitioners can be useful. It could be the only way they're getting new information about drugs. So it has its place. It's just a question of lining it up with the right, with the right audience um, and the right need. Yeah. And like I said, I, I'm definitely, we have some great ones. I'm definitely not hating on all of them, but um, we, we, I had a, I had a, <laughs> we talked to one not too long ago and uh, just trying to sell, like I said, a medication I wasn't a huge fan of. And, you know, it was very nice, but then brought up a point where I, I said, well, you know, what about some of these that brought up some of the trials? And he said, you know, one thing I'm really trying to get my head around is why so many people get caught up on outcomes. <laughs> and I just, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, well, well that's I mean, kind that's of also the challenge when, you know, there's still many sales forces that, that people come in that don't have a deep scientific background and they have to be trained on the job. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, I've seen some pharmacists who, who go to the, 
the sales side of things or commercial functions in general and do quite well because to have someone who comes in who inherently knows the disease and the patient issues and the science is a huge boom. Um, but it's it's still largely you know people with more business backgrounds in those areas. Yeah, having pharmacists do it, I think, builds trust with the practitioners, too, because I, I worked closely with one-on-one rotation for a different company um, for a specific drug. And the he had been working with that doctor for 20 years, and um, the doctor really trusted him. And I think he brought good information, and he, was, he had been a pharmacist previous to being a, a sales rep, and he got a lot of his information from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as far as, you know, working in the oncology space— um, do you do you feel like this is something that you're going to stay in for you know the foreseeable future of your career? Do you see yourself kind of looking in other areas to eventually? Um, I, I like oncology. I've been back in that space for almost three years now, and there's so much going on in it and within AstraZeneca, but across the board, right? Um, it is the one of the richest areas for research. The advances in the science, uh, genomics, and and other therapeutic areas is just incredible. And 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 you know nobody likes to really use the C word, the cure word, in in you know for jinxing our our research efforts. But there's this is like I think the first time in a long time and across many. Um, cancers where you can actually see the science advancing enough that leads to promise of that. And so it really feels like we're on the cusp in a lot of areas of understanding these tumors and, and mechanisms of, of addressing them and, and targeting them that could really lead to significant impacts in, for patients. So that's why I'm excited about it and why I hope to stay in it um, for, for quite a while. But the other thing in industry is your horizon on, on on that you can see over where things are going is probably a couple of years because things change so fast. Yeah. And I think that's another thing about coming to industry. If you're if you're used to an academic setting, hospital setting, the pace of change that occurs is is on another level. And you just you know if you're comfortable and get used to that kind of ambiguity, you can do great. If that freaks you out, then that's another issue. And so things can change fast also. I mean, yeah. look at this, look how 2020 changed everything, right? Yeah, it's been a, been a great year so far. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's extremely exciting. So do the current advances, I mean, do they really all have to do with a greater understanding of genetics and then targeted biologics to, to treat tumors, like you said, just a better understanding of the tumors? There's a lot that way. I mean, at the, the whole, you know, the omics piece of various um, genomics and other omics, I think, are... are tremendous advances. There's so many, there's so many learnings around, you know, what is lung cancer is not just non-small cell and small cell. I mean, and it's getting more and more where it's being appreciated, especially now that you can do genome sequencing. So, so cheaply and easily that to really understand an individual's cancer and then, and then be able to, to really tailor therapies and truly get to personalized medicine. I mean, we're not truly at personalized medicine yet. We come up with the pure individual's cocktail, um, but it's so much closer to that. And, and so when you look across all the different mechanisms, whether it's the immuno-oncology advances, um, um, things like, you know, targeting of, of um, genetic mutations and mechanisms of resistance that cancer's having to escape the immune system and be able to target those systems or the DNA repair mechanisms being able to disrupt that so the cancers can't keep fixing themselves or are now or the cool things around like antibody drug conjugates where you're linking up um, an antibody against 
you know, uh, uh, an antigen on the on the tumor with a like chemo payload. So the chemo isn't floating to target every cell in the body, but goes only to the cells that have that antigen. I mean, it's yeah. pretty cool type of scientific advances. Um, they're not perfect, but yet are still our five year survival on, on many cancers are improving, but they're not going to be bad cancer cancer they're still awful right you know you know dismal outcomes but there are other areas that have made tremendous advances uh, on those on those five-year um, survival which is you know from a clinical trial standpoint the one way you can tell whether you're really having a long-standing uh, impact sure where what's kind of what's been the I guess in your experience from a either a specific you know, organ system or, you know, whatever the case may be, what's been the most difficult area as far as like treatment and, you know, new research coming out, you know, that's, you know, with like lung cancer, for example, you know, some of the treatment options that'll come out, you know, may improve by an extra month or, you know, two months survival. And, you know, it, it just seems to be a lot slower than something as far as advancements as, as opposed to something like leukemia and some of those. Um, what's been some of the really difficult types of cancer that is struggling right now? Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways of looking at that, right? Some cancers, like I said, so pancreatic is clearly, mm -hmm. you know, difficult. And, and it's oftentimes because of when they're being diagnosed, right? Most pancreatic cancer patients, you're not dying. They're not, the patients are not diagnosed until it's metastatic disease. So what more can you do at that stage? And I think that's what comes down to, um, even in some in some lung cancers, and, and what you see with a lot of these studies that come out in this, you know, drug A has a you know progression-free survival of 1.8 months, and you're like, well, so what? But you also look at when when you're bringing a new therapy in and you're going to try it out in clinical trials. Oftentimes, the place to go first to see if it really has an impact are on the patients who have no other choice because you want them to to get the opportunity to benefit from the standards of care that are already available. So you may go to the patient who's already failed three lines of therapy, four lines, they've progressed four different times. They have nothing else. That's where you'll test it and see first because you'll try your drug against standard of care. And you may only get a couple of months therapy, but that might be enough of a proof of concept to say, this drug works in those patients. It may, for the latest line, patients only extended their life a little bit, but now we can try it earlier. Yeah. Right now we and, and the hope is the more we can diagnose and treat patients early in the disease before they have metastatic disease and the better likelihood they can have an effect. But you're not going to go with a new drug right into first line early disease when the patients may have so many more proven options. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why you also see that um, in, in these these things that people tout them as as benefit. And you're like, is it is a couple of months that that worth it. Well, at certain stages, certain cancers, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. But it, it's also proving the concept that biologically this this thing works and we're going to now try it in, in broader populations, earlier stage disease with hopes of really trying to stem it and have long-term effects. Yeah, sure. But but I think, like, like I said, most of the times you see the really challenging to treat cancers that make an impact are ones where we just don't have good enough screening and diagnostics to catch them early enough. Yeah. Or, or they once they once they trigger and start growing, they grow so rapidly um, and advance so rapidly that um, by the time there are symptoms that actually bring a person in to be to be screened and get evaluated, it's it's already you know 
too late to do anything substantial. Yeah. So how, how big of an impact, or I guess I, we know the impact, but as far as like pharmacogenomics, how much of that has, have you had to kind of um, dive into? And, and obviously that's pharmacogenomics in much more areas other than just uh, oncology, but have you had to start really diving into that area of, you know, medicine and kind of start doing research there? Uh, as a company, absolutely. I mean, we have yeah. whole divisions in it. Me personally, I'm not an expert in the space because my responsibilities are so broad. But we have, you know, whole divisions within our early, early development standpoint. So we have typically what a lot of companies will have will have an early development group, and then you'll have a late development group. And early is really the, the discovery phase. We are trying to evaluate different compounds. It used to be you try ten thousand different compounds and then you'd finally found one that can actually make it to on the market. Nowadays, a lot of that discovery is being done with AI and computers and trying to design molecules against different targets. So a lot more advances from a digital standpoint, but it's at that phase where you're looking at the various targets, the various um, mutations the patients have, and then, and then do you have the right therapy or combinations of therapies that will work against them. And so a ton of work in those areas. What you see a lot of now, and I think that pharmacists will more and more um, in, in the cancer space is the combination of diagnostics, diagnostic tests along with the medicines, right? Some medicines will get approved in only patients that have a certain mutation. And so to appreciate you know, as you're evaluating patients, is this the right drug for the right patient? You're going to have to have an understanding of the di- the diagnostic area and a little bit some of pathology as well that may be newer for for um, for people to that we haven't had to do before. So, what do you say to um, let's say students who are like, man, yeah, that sounds like something I can do? You know, dispensing is not my forte. Um, working in the hospital setting is not my forte. You described your path as atypical. Um, is there a more direct post-grad or post-residency path to um, an MSL job? Also on the, uh, maybe if you're speaking to providers, because we have a lot of other healthcare practitioners that listen, I know providers who have been reached out to by um, specifically medical science liaisons, which I don't know how often that happens, but um, emphasizing that they're not drug reps, but they they want to you know institute some a plan in place for a certain drug or certain um, standard of care. Um and they're a little skeptical. So what do you say to them? Um, can they trust it? I guess you should say, what kind of a resource can they be to a provider? Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've been talking mostly about the, the MSL role as, as cause it was my way into industry, but obviously there's a lot of other functions and areas that pharmacists can have very, you know, fruitful careers in and med- MSLs typically fall under a, a department we call medical affairs. Right. And, and so other things that are typically in there are, medical information or will be drug information um, type of, of roles. You could have health economics outcomes research. You can have publications, which is a more medical writing. You can have medical strategy um, pieces to kind of understand and try to map out all right, what's the next study that needs to be done to fill this hole in the gap in the evidence. Um, so there's a whole host of roles within the medical affairs area. Then you've got R&D functions, right? People who can work on clinical trials, could be clinical research associates or help design trials. And various practitioners go that route, physicians, PhDs, especially and the like, but many pharmacists and, and other types of practitioners as well. 
We talked about commercial and sales roles. There are opportunities there as well. And then you have other functions like regulatory affairs, patient safety, drug safety groups that are doing the pharmacovigilance, working with regulators to ensure that you know, the studies and the, and the materials that are being used are appropriate. So there's a whole host of ways of going. I think what you typically see from an MSL role, so start there, is I think my, my path maybe isn't that atypical in that hiring people that have a few years at least experience working in the clinical setting and understand that disease area, understand patient care, the, the clinical challenges and the like is, is, a, is a valuable skill and experience that get looked for when coming in uh, and having that therapeutic, that therapeutic area knowledge. Sure. Um, but that doesn't have to be for everyone. A lot of roles, there, there are roles that can be, um, that are entry level, like first in industry roles. And for students, I think many of them now are exploring the fellowship route, the industry fellowship route. Um, there are so many of them, I can't even keep track of how many industry fellowship opportunities there are now. And typically those will give a broad exposure in industry to, to fellows, right? They'll, they'll run them through a few months in different departments to see which areas they like. So it's great to get that, that broad area. Other fellowships may be very concentrated. There may be health economics and outcome research. So you may find someone who's got an interest there and they're going to get real deep in that area. So hopefully they'll then be able to land a, a job in specifically in that area. So the fellowships are a great route, but I think from an MSL standpoint, having some clinical experience, have some patient care experience is really, is really useful. Yeah, for sure. So the, the fellowships that are out there, um, there are several, and I, I haven't looked too much into this cause that wasn't my area, but um, there are several fellowships like actually with specific drug companies to kind of train you to eventually be a medical science liaison. Is that right? Yeah. Um, most fellowships still are coordinated through a university, a college of pharmacy. Rutgers is the one that most people know of because it was one of the first to start, but there are at least a dozen colleges of pharmacy that are, that are uh, facilitating these now. And then the, the pharmaceutical companies will identify the fellow fellowships that they will do in a given time. And then, at mid-year and the like, they will do their recruiting efforts to, to identify and select the right fellow. And, and those with the hopes of landing a role in industry. Now, a fellowship, if somebody who came straight through school and then did a fellowship, they may not be the best candidate for an MSL role because they probably haven't done enough clinical roles that they haven't worked in that setting for a long period of time. But they may be very well-suited to come into industry as a med, in a med, medical information role, in a, in a patient safety role, in a regulatory area, commercial roles, and others. And then once you're in, then the whole rest of the industry opportunities get open to you, and you can start to choose your career path and where you want to do things and move in different directions. That's awesome. Very interesting. So going back to you, if it was 1995, you're going back in time, what would you do differently? Um, I, I still, I still would, I mean, I loved the, the PharmD program at MUSC. I, I wouldn't change at all. Right. Uh, that was to me the best uh, opportunity and my, and my residency in clinical pharmacy days were great. I think the things I would do differently were more when I joined in my time since joining AstraZeneca and joining industry. Um, I've had a great I've loved my my career paths. I went from MSL to an MSL manager to leading a a, a national team, um, um, uh, and then moving into other therapeutic areas and having roles of broader responsibility. 
what I probably should have done is is paid more attention to how much time I was spending in a given role. There were some roles I probably was there longer than I got out of it, you know, growth and experience and looking at my learning curve and saying when I was getting to the flat part of my learning curve, maybe that was a time for a new stretch opportunity and do something else. And within industry, that kind of movement's encouraged. And that could have given me even broader experiences outside of the typical medical uh, affairs departments into other departments that that could have ex- op- opened up more opportunities for me. And then the other one is is I haven't lived abroad, and I have a I have a global responsibility now. I have most of my team is in the UK. I've had teams in Poland. I've had teams in Sweden before. Um, but you know, opportunities to go live and work in another country are things that you have in industry that I haven't yet done, and I may still do because it, it's to me. We'll see how the world evolves as far as travel and the like. But the opportunity to really understand how healthcare is different in other countries and how health systems operate differently, the regulations are different, how cultures are different, and working with people in different languages. And like that, that, that to me is a tremendous experience. And I wish I would have done that sooner when my kids were little and they could have got exposed to that. Um, as my kids got older, it became harder for us to extract them from their, their social networks and everything else. So I kind of put it off and put it off. And that, that would be the one thing I would do differently. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because as far as the climbing the ladder situation in industry, because you don't get that a lot with many pharmacy jobs. I think with most, let's say, community positions or even uh, clinical or staff pharmacist positions, it's usually you come in with a high salary and a good paying, good, solid job but there's just not a lot of growth there. I think that is can be very appealing. The, um, the industry route can be very appealing to students if they say, hey, I can start out, you know, at this entry-level position, and then, you know, it's encouraged to, to grow over time and, and get a, you know, better position. Yeah. Have right. a mountain to climb. Yeah. Yeah, but, the, you know, I've got lots of colleagues who, they're in MSL, they're in one therapeutic area, they've been in their home city, that they went to school for their entire career and they've had great careers. They've loved it. They've just, you know, it's just a different way. They wanted to, to take the career and other, you know, different values. They had things that were important to them. And, and I think you can do that too. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think if I, if I told my wife, like, Hey, well, real quick, we got to move to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be moving by myself. <laughs> just, just don't take her in the winter to see. Oh it. my yeah. gosh. I can't even imagine. I'd be there for one day and have to come home. Yeah. We're in Charleston. <laughs> I mean, our winter is their hottest summer. 70 degrees. That's our winter. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, um, advice for students. If just, if you could throw out just like a piece of advice, what would you tell students they should be doing like either to set themselves apart? Cause obviously the things have gotten so competitive now with residencies, fellowships, all that. Um, what's your advice to students when they're asking you like, Hey, how can I set myself apart to like kind of make a name for myself to have a better shot at getting one of these positions? Um, I think, I think one thing is taking an honest appraisal of their strengths right? And, 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 and really leverage their strengths because everybody's going to have different strengths and areas for growth. And, and the main thing is to know your own and be able to focus on those and be able to, to, to put those forward in a positive way. I think that self-awareness is probably a big piece. We can talk all day about, you know, should you do these rotations? Should you do this experience? What about this internship? How do you spend this summer? And I think that there's, there's so many options. There's many people 
um, yes, having extracurriculars is good. Does the person who has all the extracurriculars definitely better off than the person that doesn't? If they can't have a conversation, if they don't have good communication skills and feel like they're outgoing enough that, that, that somebody would hire them to trust that they're going to be out there communicating effectively, it doesn't matter, right? So it's it's really understanding you know, themselves well and what, what energizes them? What are the parts of, of pharmacy and the career and, and the, what they've learned along the way that were the things that really got them excited? If they can identify that and say, okay, how can I make that part of my career? Because if I can be excited every day, then it doesn't matter which path it is, it's gonna be great, right? Um, rather than trying to say, there's a, there's a template to follow and if you do these things, you'll be set up for success. Sure, yeah, I like that. Because I think one of the things that, unfortunately happens now is we have like this almost like cookie cutter approach. Like you have to do things this way, this way, this way. And like, you got to be a part of these organizations and you got to do this and say all these things, delete your Facebook and blah, 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 blah. And I just feel like that's such a, that's a good path for making everyone look like clones versus, and definitely there's merit to it. Obviously it's, it's working for a lot of people, but I do think that like having ways of kind of setting yourself apart or, being innovative or whatever the case may be is just as important for kind of standing out, especially in this day and age. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think the other thing too is especially like with industry, since it is so foreign to many uh, students who just don't get as much exposure to it as other aspects of pharmacy is, is to do your research, right? If you're going to go in for an interview and the like, at least show that you've done work to understand what the roles are and talk to people who are doing them and research the company and know what their medicines are and their research areas are. I mean, those are the people who stand out in the interview process. At least you know they've expressed some interest, they've done some work and they they, they know why they're they're meeting with you. Um, and and I think that, that goes a long way as well. Sure. So it doesn't look good when someone comes into an interview and you ask them what their favorite drug at AstraZeneca is and they have no <laughs> clue what any of the drugs are. We don't have time to go into uh, interview experiences over yeah. the years because I've got some stories. Oh, I can imagine. We'll save that for the bonus material. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, I guess kind of in closing, we've taken up a lot of your time, but um, in closing, what, uh, what's the th kind of on the horizon that has you the most excited, you know, in, in the nerdiest way possible? What, yeah. What's the thing that you're the most excited about research-wise or drug-wise? I, honestly, the things that excite me right now are not necessarily a particular research or drug area. It's it's how um, digital is changing healthcare and 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 what that could mean for all of us, right? And we look at it from the standpoint of okay, how can we do clinical trials differently? How can we generate evidence differently with the different data sources and AI and machine learning are available? How are the different wearables actually going to be incorporated into care? And how could that impact how a medicine could be used or how a patient's disease is going to be impacted? And there's so much around the digital side that we're spending a ton of our time just trying to understand. And obviously, COVID accelerated this for all of us. I mean, just the fact that we're meeting virtually wouldn't have happened a year ago yeah. this way. I wouldn't need to get on a plane, fly somewhere, sit down in an office and have a conversation. Now we can accomplish so many things in different ways because the whole world is receptive to it, right? So there's a lot there that we don't know how it's going to change, um, but it's really it's really exciting opportunities. At the same at the same time, just on on this year and, and on what all this changes, there's also a lot of concerns that we have is that a lot of patients across many diseases, but especially cancers 
haven't been following up with their care and they may you know, have worse outcomes or haven't gotten screened because of disruptions in care or fear of COVID. And, and you know, we're trying to do a part to really raise the awareness of, of patients who have concerning symptoms of getting their screening and the like, and, or patients who have been on treatments who may have disrupted is to get back in contact with their healthcare practitioner and determine what the next course of therapy is. Because the worst thing I, I, I fear is that Patients who had a chance for a really positive outcome in their disease now are going to end up worse off because of that disruption. Um, if we can, if we can address that and correct that, then then I think we can really be back on on the the path we had been on previously around the excitements and, and things we can do across you know how research can affect many of these diseases. Sure, that's yeah. great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us, man. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and talking with us and sharing some insight. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, it's great, especially to uh, have the opportunity to do this as part of pharmacy all that week. Um, I, I really appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank all of you for listening. I really appreciate the support. And uh, if you have any questions for Cole or myself, definitely uh, our emails will be in the show notes. And you can also direct message us on any of the social media platforms. Uh, if you want to text me directly, you can text 415-943-6116. Um, also, thank you guys so much for all the people supporting on Patreon. I've been, I know we're kind of shocked at how yeah. that's been growing. So greatly appreciate all of that. Hope you guys are liking the lectures on there. And if there's any topics or comments, questions, concerns, definitely send us an email. We will try to get back to you as quick as we can. But, yes, overall, thank you guys so much for the support. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. See you.